While you guys think of any questions you have, I want to re return to um, Jacob Moore's question last week. Um, it was a complicated question, and thought it was good. And I actually have a friend of mine who, who listens in New Hampshire to this, and we talked about it for about half an hour, and then Daniel and I talked about it this morning. And that is, um, my first point this morning in dealing with how not to be a legalist is make sure what you're saying comes from the Bible. But the Bible deals in the categories of command and precept and principle, but also wisdom. And, and do we command that? And, and so I just want to make sure I get your question right from last week, Jacob. It was basically, do we command? Is wisdom law? Right? Something like that? Okay. And I'd like to expand the answer I gave on that. Um, and uh, I've actually, my position on it has even changed some in just in the last week. Um, and that is this. We are not free to knowingly be fools. Right? We're certainly not afraid to disagree with God's wisdom. So if God's wisdom says A and we say not A, then we are wrong. We're condemning God. So if God says this is foolish, I'm like, no, it's not foolish. It's wise. You're wrong. Um, and then what I'm wrestling with are those cases where we don't want to make wisdom law because what you'll then create is a new um, generation of legalists who will then sort out... <laughs> We'll, we'll do the work for you. We'll figure out what the wise options are, and then they'll come and say, here's your wise option, now you have to do it. So you're not free to knowingly be a fool. You're not free to not pursue wisdom. In fact, you were commanded to pursue wisdom like gold. And so here, I think, is the answer that I'll, that I'll try to throw out. It's not very often that the absolutely wise option is clearly evident. The, the way the Proverbs work is so many different Proverbs can bear come to bear on a situation. So I was talking to Pastor Daniel this morning, and we were using the option of, let's just imagine a hypothetical scenario. Some young man is seeking counsel on, on he's got three options of, a, of, a, of women to pursue who are Christians. And let's just imagine a hypothetical scenario. So we, we recognize we've narrowed this field down. You're not allowed, because remember, we looked at last week, there's really not many commands when it comes to marriage. You've got to marry a believer in the Lord. You can't marry someone else's husband or wife. You can't marry someone of the same um, gender as you. you. You can't marry a super close relative. Beyond that, that is about it for commands, right? Now, if you go to Proverbs and other places in Scripture, there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of advice that God gives, especially um, King Lemire's mother in Proverbs 31. As he, she lays out what, what a godly wife looks like. So let's, let's say we're in this scenario, um, and um, you're trying to apply these Proverbs. The, the bottom line is it's, it's rarely going to be a clear cut, there's the wise choice. Certain Proverbs weigh in the factor. But the example Daniel gave is this. Let's just say um, he and this unnamed man agreed that, that person A, biblically, was a wise, the wise choice, and person B um, was, was a hot mess and just, uh, you know, now, that still doesn't mean he has to pursue person A. But the reasons why he would pursue person B matter. So let's just say um, that th this person recognized that person B was, was a mess. But, you know, I, his answer was, I, I really, someone needs to shepherd this person, and I just have a heart for them, and I, I'm willing to give myself, and I know it's going to be maybe more work and more difficult. It's going to take a lot of, a lot of energy. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I want to, and I desire, like, like the Lord found us in our nakedness and covered us and married us and he redeemed us. I have a desire. Like, that's good. That's great. 
Now, if the answer is simply, she's hotter. Well, now you've got to deal with the fact that you've just disagreed with Proverbs. Don't put your trust in beauty. Beauty is fleeting. A woman who fears the Lord, that endures. And you're saying, no, beauty is what matters. A shapely form is what matters. No, you're wrong at that point. You, you just disagreed with God. You're wrong. So the, the issue, I think, really is why and how you're factoring these things in. The pro- multiple Proverbs can come into play in a given scenario. I mean, you've even got Proverbs that would appear at first blush to contradict themselves. Back to back, and it's not, it's not unintentional this way, you have, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. It's not a contradiction. They're back-to-back Proverbs and Proverbs. The whole point is the implied, you need to know when. Is this a scenario where you shouldn't step in? You're just going to become like him. You know, um, or is this the scenario where it's appropriate to answer him and, and reveal the folly? Well, this could take some wisdom. So I think at the end of the day, it's not a simple cut and dry, okay, here's your wise course, but why people are doing what they're doing. Um, and, and if people sometimes can be self-condemned by their own words. I know this is unwise, but, well, if somebody said that, then I think you may have to ask the basic question, why are you okay with doing something you recognize as unwise? Like, do you want to be a fool? Is that what you're trying to do? Um, so, so anyone want to add to that? But that's kind of that's kind of where where I'm at with answering that because we certainly don't want to have the new wisdom laws. Um, I'll give you one other example of, while you guys think of answers. There are a number of proverbs that warn against becoming surety for someone else. Right, right. If, if my ABF, my, my my small group, we've been um, went through the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and there are a good number of passages talking about that. Okay, so some parent is considering co-signing a car loan for their child. Do we now have a new law? Thou shalt not co-sign the loan. The Proverbs warn you, like the gazelle in getting out of this debt, do not do it. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think we can make a law there. Now, the whole question is why. Now, if the person were to say, yeah, those Proverbs are stupid. Okay, we have a, we have a more fundamental problem. <laughs> But if the parent said, you know, I think the Proverbs are fundamentally warning that you're going to lose your, you're going to, you're going to be in debt. You're going to lose your money. But I'm willing to lose this money. I'm willing if it comes to it to count this money as a gift. And I think it would be good. I want to test my child and see if they're able to make these regular payments. And I think it would be good for them to train them as they one day may get a mortgage and have to make payments to train them to do this, to see if they're able to do it as a test. And at the end of the day, I'm fully prepared to wipe off this debt. I can afford it. I, I, I could pay it off if I needed to. And that's why I'm, I think those are good reasons to do that. Now, if the reasons are simply, I know the Proverbs warn against that, but I'm sure it'll be fine. You're really ignoring the wisdom of the Proverbs, which is, no, you're opening yourself up to a world of liability and hurt. Um, the other person's saying, I see that, and I'm willing to do that, but. So that, that, that would be the two test cases I'd use of Proverbs and wisdom. So yeah, if someone's arguing with what is wisdom, we have a bigger problem. Like, you're not willing to let God's wisdom inform you. If you're seeing that and saying, but I think there are other wisdom principles that apply that also weigh this, and that's, that's a different thing. Thoughts on that? Any, any um, thoughts on that? Anyone want to run with that? Or have I just talked too much? Okay. Um, any other questions then now, just in general, opening it up for this morning's message or anything on legalism, the legalists? Elsa. 
I've been thinking. Can you hear me? Yes. I've been thinking a lot about definitions of words. Because mm -hmm. we often use words and not everybody knows what it what the clear meaning is right. for the word. Right. I heard somebody and is this right or not? I heard somebody say that legalism means you are relying on something you are doing to save yourself. That is one of two definitions of legalism. There are two ways the New Testament uses legalism. That is one of them. Works righteousness, justification by works, that's legalism. Um, additionally, when Jesus says, um, hold on, I didn't, I didn't quote it this morning, but he says in um, Mark 7, 7 through 8, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now that also gets called legalism. You're making up laws. So it can mean two different things. It can mean, so Paul refers to the Judaizers as legalists. They come in with, you got to be circumcised, you got to keep the law of Moses, you got to do these things to be saved. That is legalism. Works righteousness is legalism. Adding to the commandments of God is also rightly called legalism. And sometimes it helps to clarify what you mean when you say that's legalism. Most of the time I hear it, it's the, it's the second definition. Um, well, actually, what most people really mean by legalism is that's unbending, firm, and uncompromising, which isn't the definition of legalism at all. You know, the, the real question is, is it biblical? Is it taught in Scripture? And then secondarily, is this person coming with you simply to hit you over the head like bad dog, or is this person coming to you in love, helping, willing to restore you? A heart of a legalist just likes judging people, just likes pronouncing the verdict, and leave them be, they can figure it out themselves. So, so those are two, I think, valid ways of using legalism, but we need to be careful because nine out of ten times what people mean by legalism is, that's really what it means is, that's too restrictive for me. So I got called um, I got called a legalist by some friends of mine in in um, Masters College when I went there because there were some guys who were burning CDs, copying CDs they didn't have copyrights for. And, and when I became a Christian, that's something I'd been doing. And I sort of looked into it and got to the bottom and sure found enough. Sure enough, despite all of these you know, urban myths, it's illegal. Now that's a clear cut issue. I can take you to Romans thirteen. You're to obey the government. I can take you to Thou shalt not steal. It's clearly in the Bible. And my roommate had this massive collection of burned CDs. And I tried coming alongside him, and I, and I hope and think, and this is a decade ago or more, so I mean, maybe my memory's off, but saying, hey, man, I don't know if you thought through it, but I'm pretty sure that's illegal. And at first he sort of laughed it off, because, of course, everyone did that. Everyone did that. And he's like, oh, yeah, kid, or whatever, you're always uptight. I'm like, no, no, I'm pretty sure you're stealing. And then I got the, then I got the, no, no, it's okay. As long as you don't make money and sell it, it's okay. I'm like, no, do you see that thing right there that says copyright? That, that means to copy it, you need rights to copy it. Um, and that's, and when, it, when he discovered that I was serious, I'm like, no, seriously, if you want to look into it, if the issue is you're not sure, I'll be happy to show you, but I'm really concerned because you don't seem, this gets back to the first thing of, of them not taking the charge seriously. I, I've come to you suggesting that you've stolen something, and you're not taking that very seriously. You know, you're, you're kind of laughing it off. Well, that's when, of course, the legalism came out. You're being a legalist. Okay. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that that word applies there, but hey. So usually it's when someone's trying to be um, attention to detail, and we recognize that an over-attention to detail from last week, tithing the mint, the dill, the cumin, can be, 
But Jesus says you should have done that, not neglecting this other stuff. So the Pharisees would pay attention to detail and neglect other things. And so if I'm coming to them about burning CDs while I'm sleeping with my girlfriend or something and, and looking the other way with that, well then, yeah, sure, I need to get the log out of my eye, deal with this big issue of fornication, and stop picking on him about this thing. You know, that, anyway, so that's, that's, I think, a lot of how it gets misused. But usually, it's the big conversation killer. Because once you pull out legalism, it's, it's like today telling someone they're racist or they're intolerant. It's, it's kind of the conversation ender. Uh, it's hard to get past that. Um, anyway, okay. Thoughts, questions, observations. You, here we go, Dan Barth. This isn't so much a question on legalism, and if you're going to cover this next week, that's fine. Verse 51, um, the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Can you expand on that a little bit more? And maybe I'll, I'll deal with that next week, but okay. the short answer is this is actually a huge... We talked about this at Burger King last week. Um, <laughs> we did. Okay. I had the... the, the, the what? I had the pleasure of going out to lunch um, last week to Burger King, and we discussed this. It was after church. It was a good time. It was a good time. Um, and um, the Hebrew Bible's order is different than our Old Testament order. Um, they have the Tanakh. They break it up into three categories, the former prophets, the latter prophets, and the writings. And so in the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament, same number of books, but for instance, they don't have First and Second Kings. They have the King's Scroll. They have Samuel's Scroll, Chronicles. The last book of the Hebrew Old Testament is Chronicles, what we would call First and Second Chronicles. And the last martyr in Chronicles is Zechariah, who is slaughtered. You can go read it, and we'll look at this. We'll actually read the text next week. And so what Jesus has just done is grab the very first martyr in the Hebrew Old Testament and the very last martyr in the Hebrew Old Testament and presumably everything in between. Additionally, what that does for us is it gives us an idea of what Jesus understands the, the, the Scriptures to be. So that when the Roman Catholic Church comes in and wants to add the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha are not positioned in any order of the canon that we have between Genesis and Chronicles. It's just not there. And so Jesus is given us the bookends of his Bible. And so we know what that is. We know the contents. When Jesus says the, you know, the, the, the scriptures cannot pass away, the law and the prophets cannot pass away, we know what he's referring to. And that passages like that give us the bookends of what he's grabbing as the scripture. Um, so it's, it's helpful in, in, in validating or verifying what the Old Testament canon is. And should we include First and Second Maccabees? And should we include Esdras and these other extra canonical books? Um, so so that's is also helpful for that. But that's as much as I'm going to say right now because there's more for next week. All the way in the back. Or Carol Hardy first. Okay. No, I was just going to make a comment. Maybe I've said this before, so sorry to be repetitious, but um, when it comes to setting your standards for yourself that may not be cut and dried for everyone else, you don't want to push off on everyone else, I always go to 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul uses the same quote from, I don't know where the quote came from originally, but all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Mm. In six, then he follows it up by saying, I will not be enslaved by anything. Mm. So something may be, may be lawful and there may not be any 
any uh, precept against it, but if I, there's a chance I'm going to be enslaved to it, I should stay away from it. Now, I can't be the judge of someone else. Then in chapter 10, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Right. And then he follows that one up by saying, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And that's where the meat offered to idols thing yep. follows that up. So the second, first question is, is it going to enslave me? The second question is, will it cause someone else to stumble or sin? Mm. And so even though in itself it may, it may be lawful, maybe I shouldn't do it for one of those two reasons. Mm. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. That uh, it, it seems, I think, as best as we can tell, their slogan that they were championing, but whether or not it was, there's for your own weakness, you might sense I'm tempted or weak in an area, so we're not going to go near that. Some people recognize I, I fear I might not be able to drink in moderation, so I'm just not going to drink. That's a, and Paul says in Romans 14, that's great, wonderful. Like you honor the Lord with that. The temptation over time is that what is a conviction for me and right for me, I start pressing off onto other people. And that's that's where you the line gets crossed, and, and it can very be very pernicious. I mean, what what can happen is you get. Did I use this example last week? I'm trying to. I've had like four or five conversations on this. So if I start off and and I said this last week, just let me know. You get a godly guy who has godly disciplines, and say, the, did I use this last week? Yeah. And very quickly, he people imitate. That's great too. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so these guys are like, hey, Mr. Smith is so righteous, and Mr. Smith reads his Bible every day for two hours in the morning. I'm going to do that too. That's great. And then you get to the point where, and if you were godly, you would too. You just cross the line right there, um, where you're now holding people to these standards. So it's it's subtle, and you got to look out for it because um, the level of condemnation that Jesus gives to people who load people with heavy burdens hard to bear, and when we're adding in rules to things, uh, it's it's we want to be really careful that we don't do that. Uh, some other areas we can do that in is with dress. I know there are some people who honor the Lord by wearing fine clothes on, on the Lord's Day. That's awesome. Um, very quickly it can turn into, and if you were righteous, you would too. Okay, chapter and verse. And if you think you got chapter and verse, great. We'll, we'll open our Bibles and we'll talk. If it's not that, it may have an appearance of wisdom, but you need to keep your conviction to yourself, is what Paul says in, in uh, Romans 14. So... I think we can think of plenty other examples of places where we can be tempted to do that. So these are the types of things we've got to be careful about. Um, uh, hold on, Simeon, you're coming up next, but there's somebody on the way in the back had their hand up before. Yes. Um, this is kind of similar to what you were just talking about. Um, like some people can have really strong opinions about um, different topics, and so it's kind of that same thing where it's based on biblical principles, but it's not, you know, specifically what the Bible says. Mm. And sometimes, you know, my Christian authors might have a really, you know, they'll write a book about something that they're really passionate about. And you'll kind of get this sense as you're reading it of, well, this isn't like, you know, directly what the Bible says. It's not a command, but you're not as holy of a Christian if you're not doing that. Mm. Or um, if you don't agree with them, then you're like, you're wrong, even though it's, kind of, you know, a strong opinion or a conviction. So how do you kind of discern between that? Or if you, if you yourself, you know, have strong opinions, how do you be careful with... Uh, I don't know anything about having strong opinions, Zach, so you may have to... <laughs> you may have to find... Some, no. Um, 
No, well, you need to be careful there because even just debating it is, is violating what Paul is saying, keeping your opinions to yourself. I mean, a subtle way that I can force my opinion on you would be to come and say, hey, can I get your thoughts about what do you think about, but really I just want to convince you that I'm right. Now, I do think you can validly have that question. Um, if I'm trying to wrestle through issues of conscience, I'll generally try to find someone I don't think I'm going to trip their conscience up with by asking them. I say, hey, I'm trying to work through, what do you think about this? I mean, that's great. The, the bottom line um, solution has got to be Hebrews 5. Go, go to, we looked at this last week. Go to Hebrews 5. There's no shortcut in discernment. The way you grow in discernment is through a constant practice of separating good from evil which is a constant practice of where does the chapter and verse, where does the Bible say that? And uh, trying to work through it. Why? I mean, I have this happening all the time. I'll question some conviction I have. Why do I hold that? Is it just a tradition? Is it just something that's been handed down to me? Is it just something that, that, uh, that has been... I mean, I was talking to Jacob last week, and he said he'd never considered prayer before dinner, prayer before a meal. And yeah, it's a pattern we get in Scripture. Where's the command? And how he thinks he'd, and I'm probably the same thing, if we had some great preacher, some reputedly godly man come over to your house, you know, uh, John MacArthur shows up for dinner, or whoever, you know, or Billy Graham or whatever, and you sit down and eat, and they just dig in. You'd be kind of, huh? You know, um, and yet, I don't know of any command that's being broken there. And just so periodically checking yourself is what I believe and is the, what I'm holding to. Is that something I can show in the Bible or is it just something that was handed down to me? And so Hebrews 5, in, in distinguishing the mature from the immature, the baby Christians, the weak Christians from the mature Christians, says this. Here are the characteristics of weakness and maturity. Verse 11, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So the first problem is a lack of interest in these topics altogether, a short attention span when it comes to the Bible, um, you know, religious ADHD. And so the, the, the dull of hearing is the immature. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So here's another, how well do you know your Bible? Are you getting to know your Bible better and better and better um, since he is a child? But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You are constantly, what does the scripture say about this, which necessitates where does it say it, you know? Um, and you can be thankful for some quotations in Hebrews. It is written somewhere. And so that's okay. It's written. Eventually you need to be able to figure out where it is. But you know, every now and then I'll have to say, I don't know where it is, but I know it says. The author of Hebrews introduces at least two quotations with, somewhere it is written. <laughs> so you can, you can feel okay if you don't recognize. I can usually get in the chapter, like you know, Ephesians 5, somewhere towards the end. You know, this is close enough that I can look it up if I need to, you know. So that would be my answer, Zach, is we've got to separate things out. Um, and we're testing what you're reading. So when you're reading an author and they're, they're commending some practice to you rather than saying, okay, you're this smart author who went to school and you wrote this book, so clearly you know what you're talking about. You're testing what they're saying and you're testing what I'm saying from the pulpit. One of the reasons we do this Q&A ABF is I want to be held accountable to this. I am not your pope. I'm not some interpretive authority. I do not want to take the keys of knowledge from you. 
like the lawyers did. Um, and so I want to demonstrate that I need to be able to back up what I say and, and that, that it's good for people to question and push back. And that is right and as it should be. Um, so, that, so that would be the other thing is, is don't just turn your brain off for anyone who's, but hold it up. Okay, is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Is that, you know, I'd encourage you when you read a book, as John Piper says, argue back in the, in the margins. You know I mean? That doesn't make sense. Or, hold, or track it down. Don't just passively read something. Well, this is, you know, this guy's godly and he's got a good reputation, so surely he's right. No, test it out. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. That's, uh, that's, that'd be my, answer and uh, hold on someone in the back okay Simeon how does uh, legalism and like leadership and submission to leadership work together because sometimes that seems to overlap each other okay legalism and submission to leadership you mean in particularly in the church or in life general because if you have someone saying oh it is good to abstain from alcohol, say your church leader or your father or something like that. Right, right. And you say, well, I have a conscience so I can make my own decision mm. on that. Do you, is it good to submit even though it is theoretically potentially legalism or is it, or, and then also from the leadership side, do you say, uh. well, I should not necessarily impose things that they can deal with on their conscience. Where is the line kind of mm. on that? Where do you kind of overlap? Okay. That kind is, of a case by case thing, but in a sense maybe. But. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, what we need to recognize is that people can be an authority and people can misuse their authority and that does not mean we get to ignore their authority. No, no we want to think, ah, ah, an abuse or misuse of authority. Now I can tell you to get lost. If God has placed us under authority, whether it be children to parents, whether it be a wife to a husband, whether it be uh, Christians to the leadership in a church, or whether it be all of us to the governing officials, um, we don't have the prerogative of saying, that's a misuse of authority, therefore I can neglect it. Um, Now, no authority can command us to sin. But unless it's a command to sin... We, we need to, and, and it can be right in the right context to push back. Why, why have you done this? Um, why do you think this is good? Help me see the beauty in this. Help me see the wisdom in this. But with a submissive attitude. So one of the, one of the jokes I, I say, not joke, one of the things I'll say, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons I fully hold to the plurality of elders in leadership is that every individual elder is subject to the plurality. So nobody's the top guy who isn't submitting. So if I show up to our elder meeting on Tuesday and the elders tell me they think I should wear a red jumpsuit every day to work, and they're serious, um, I, hope, I hope that I would do two things. I hope that I would push back and say, look, you know, in 1 Peter 5, the leaders are commanded not to lord their authority over other people. I, help me see any wisdom in this. It really strikes me as an abuse, a misuse, a lording of authority. I hope I would be saying that in an orange jumpsuit at the same time, because they haven't called me to sin. A red jumpsuit, red jumpsuit. You see what I'm saying? No, but that, that, that's a stupid example. It's a stupid example, but to get the idea, uh, what's it to me if I wear an orange jumpsuit? I look silly. So what? Fine. In other words, I'm going to give them a hearing. I'm going to press. And, and within the church, we aren't to make laws, right? So, so I can make rules as a parent that aren't righteousness. My kids have a curfew, my kid, you know, things like that. It's arbitrary. Why do my kids go to bed at 7.30 and not 9? It works with our schedule. But it's a law. And so if you're in a position of authority, you can make law. 
Now, if you're in the church, I can't just make law. Um, I need to be very, very careful where I'm gonna where I'm gonna give a command that I can't directly apply to Scripture. Now, there's a couple of instances I can I, in, in a decade I've I've only used that type of uh, approach in two or three cases, and usually it's a direct outworking of a biblical principle. Um, usually it's people who are trying to dodge you because they know something's wrong in their life, and you're like, we need to sit down and talk. And and even then, I, I don't like to say, okay, will you just will you just do it because I'm asking you to do it. I'm, I've had this conversation before. If I'm going to give an account for you, can we talk? Because <laughs> it's not fair that I'm going to give an account for you and you won't give me any access to what's going on. Now tell me I'm not going to give an account for you. Tell me I'm not going to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for your soul. But if I am going to give an account for your soul, we, we need to talk. You know what I mean? Um, fair enough. So really, it's, it's rare that, um, that, that, that the leaders, the elders are going to give a command that isn't immediately directly rooted in Scripture. And if it's not, it'll be one step out. It'll be an application. Here's the concept. The sphere in which, and you see this in the Bible, the sphere in which someone is, is given a responsibility tends to be the sphere in which they're given authority. Right? So, so he, in Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who are to watch over your soul and will give an account. So I've been given a measure of authority over, over Christians in this church, and the other elders have as well, but I think it's directly related to that sphere in which we're to give an account. So I'm going to be most comfortable exercising that if it's directly in the sphere where I'm giving an account. And I'm going to be less comfortable if it's like, you need to show up for the work day on Thursday. <laughs> right? And that's where you have the equally command in First Peter 5, where Peter says to the elders not to lord their authority over the flock, but to serve them gladly and willingly. And so there's this tension here of, of things. So that's, does that, so we can recognize misuses of authority. And when we're dealing with brothers and sisters, we can call them on that. A wife can say to her husband, I, 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 I really am struggling with this, with this command you've given. I'm really struggling with this directive, you, what you want to do. But I hope they do it wearing the red jumpsuit. You know what I mean? Like while they're obeying or while they're demonstrating a heart of obedience. Um, and, and there's even a court of appeal there if, if a husband is, is really being unreasonable. I mean, say a husband says, say you've got a jealous husband. I want you to talk to nobody. Nobody. Delete all your Facebook accounts. You, you don't leave the house. Like, at a certain point, I think you'd be right in saying, I, I'm really struggling with this as good and right. There seem to be commands of God, of fellowship and interaction with the believers that this is hindering. Do, do, would you mind getting a second? Can we, can we go talk to the pastors and the elders? Because I really am struggling with this. And, and I think you could, that could be a valid recourse so that you're not left without recourse. But in the meantime, if, if an illegitimate biblical authority is calling on you to do something that's not sin, you need to be doing it even if there's a legitimate avenue of protest or question. Um, it's not, I won't sub... Otherwise, what we're saying is, I won't submit until you satisfy my objections, which isn't submission. Um, and the, the test of submission is what you do when you totally disagree. I don't need any authority to give most of you $10, right? I could walk up, give you a $10 bill. I need no authority to do that. What I need authority for is to take it from you, Right? So if I only submit to those things I agree with, I'm not really submitting. I agree with it. The test of submission and obedience is always the tough cases. The test of your obedience to the Lord is not where you see what he says is good. The test of your obedience to the Lord is where you look at the command of Christ, and he says, turn left, and everything in you wants to turn right. Now what do you do? Now, now we find out who you obey. 
It, it, it's, it, you, we don't learn anything when you and Jesus happen to agree. We don't learn anything when you and your husband happen to agree. We don't learn anything when, like, my kids are not obeying me when they get in the car to go to Burger King and the playroom. They're obeying me when they're cleaning their room. I don't need, to, I don't need authority to tell them we're going to the park. I need authority to tell them we're going to bed, right? So that the test is where you most disagree. That's, that's where we find out what we think. And one of the dangers we have living in a country that's founded on revolution is this notion that if I think I have a legitimate objection and if I think I'm getting taxation without representation, I don't have to obey you until you answer me. And that's not a notion you'll find in the Bible. Um, so anyway... At least, anyway, yes, I'm not, I'm not trying to open the American Revolutionary can of worms. I want to punt on that one right now, right now. Um, yes, Linda. Okay, going back to um, your response to Jacob earlier, I was just mm. trying to find the verse. That's why I didn't ask the question right away. Excellent. Um, 1 Timothy 5.8, so it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you reconcile that? Well, then if someone comes to you asking for help, but you know they're going to be foolish with the help you give them, how do you not feel guilty about not helping? Sure. Are you talking about a, are you talking about a family member? Okay, okay. And this is where I think there's a lot of commands and even commands that become tricky, right? So let me, let me can I give a slightly different example just because clearly I think you're dealing with something personal or, or something in your life. You've got don't resist an evil person in the sermon on the plain. Give to those who ask of you. Give them, don't withhold. And now I go over to Candy's friend. Give me the sleeping pills. I want to OD. You're not going to give them to him, Right? And Paul says, if someone won't work, let them not eat. Someone says, give me some food, I'm hungry. And they refuse to work, right? So, so we recognize that there can be, um, and even in the law of priority, Jesus appeals to this in John 7, when um, he, he says, in your law it is written, you, you shall honor the Sabbath, but you circumcise. And if circumcision on the eighth day lines up with the Sabbath, circumcision wins out. You, you circumcise the child on the eighth day. The priest does that work. Um, so there, I think, on the one hand, all things being equal, you care for your family. What if you've got a wastrel who refuses to work and just wants to live off of you? I think other pre- principles come in as well. And sometimes it takes wisdom to juggle which priority principle wins out. So if you're enabling someone, if you're... If you're um, Letting, caring for someone is, is enabling them, say, to perpetuate a drug addiction, enabling them to perpetuate um, sloth and, and not working. I don't want to work. Let me come live with you. Uh, I, I think those types of factors and other statements about them. But now you're juggling between the Bible says this and the Bible says this. Help me sort through them. And what you've got in, and in, and in 1 Timothy, the immediate context, you're dealing with a widowed woman looking for support, going to a family member, and the family member's turning her away, saying no. That's, you're worse than an unbeliever. Once, the further you remove from that immediate context of a widow, going to her children or family, now to, whether it's a parent to a child, (laughs) the reverse, I think all sorts of other principles come in as well. But all things being equal, yes, I should care for my kids, all things being equal. 
and they're very seldom are all things equal. Um, anyone want to add to that? Or does that deal with your question, or does that not deal with your question? Lee, Lee wants to jump in. Well, I think that uh, upon occasion that if you had a child that was a, a grown child, we're talking, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. that's out of the house, and they want money to do this or that, and they say it's for the rent, but you know for a fact that they're going to go buy heroin or something. Yeah. At that point, if you give them money, you are you might as well just go buy them the heroin and give it to them so that at that point you're a, a co-criminal with them or a co-sinner. You are right. ena enabling, yes, as the term is now. So, you're yeah, participating in their deeds. Exactly. Right. So when the person who's, who's saying, hey, will you drive me to the street corner so I can meet my dealer, you give them a ride, you're participating, you're approving in what they're doing. Now, if you do it innocently, that's different. If you don't know what they're doing, that's fine. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And so it's, it's seldom um, simplified. Usually there's, there's wisdom that needs to be applied. And so when people sometimes come to the church, the elders, we have a mercy fund, and they're looking for more than, than a one-time help, but more of a long-term thing, we'll generally start to ask questions. I mean, you, you believe and you hope, but you verify. And so if somebody's really, if, I mean, I hope we'd be willing to help somebody, but we may want to verify they don't have a gambling problem. We want to verify they're not being slothful. We may want to verify they're not spending all their money on exorbitant things. And, and that's just the... That's a fair thing for us to ask, because if indeed you're being wise with your money, if indeed you're working hard and being a good steward, and yet you're in need, we want to help. We want to help. But, but at the same time, you should be transparent and, and willing to be open to some questions. Uh, and so there's, there's that. And so uh, I've, I've told one or two people who've come here, they're not members of the church, people who come, and I suspect go from church to church to church, that look, if we don't know you and you don't know us and you're not willing to be known by us, there's not a whole lot I can do. I mean, I'll fill up anybody's tank and buy anybody a pizza at the gas station because so what? I mean, I'm willing to be bamboozled that far. Beyond that, if you don't know us, is there any way we can get to know you? You know, so you're not just a nameless face, but you're, you're somebody we actually get to know. And if you're willing to do that, then maybe we can help. And, but you got to be willing to be known, you know, and, and most people I've met aren't. Um, or are very specific in the type of help they want. That's the other thing I've had people say. I say, look, I know these programs. I know there's this hope ministry. I don't want that. I don't want that. What do you, they want money. Well, for someone who's coming in need, you're very particular about the type of help you want. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know if I can be that particular. Yes. Yes. Um, I have had family members that have come and asked for like money or things mm -hmm. or things like that. And just a safeguard I've put up to prevent like partaking in their sin is if they say they need money for a specific thing, I'll just go out and buy that thing instead of giving mm. them the cash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Just that way, you know exactly what it's going towards. So you're, yeah. there's no way that you can be participating in right. the sin. And I, and I'd encourage you on the, on the flip side, you want to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, which is another really tricky road to walk. We don't want to be so paranoid that we might be enabling someone that we're never giving. Or anytime you see someone you need, they, they need to come in triplicate with their paperwork showing, right? On the other hand, we don't just want to be duped. And so there's, there's again, need for wisdom and, and seeking the Lord's wisdom and how to help, what to do to help people. I don't think the Lord's going to condemn you if one time you helped pay an electric bill, really you enabled them to buy another gallon of, of whiskey, 
You know, you, you were trying to be wise and circumspect. You know, so on the day of judgment, you'll find out that rascal tricked me again. Okay. Yet, we don't want to be fools. We want to be wise as serpents, harmless. This is a, which is a t- tough balancing act to pull off. Um, we don't want to be super critical and suspicious of everything, and yet we don't want to just be naive and foolish. Uh, four minutes. Did I see one more hand? Elsa. I would think you would always want to preach them the gospel. And you always want to preach them the gospel. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, amen. There's no arguing with that. Oh, no, Carol Hardy can argue with that. Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Is that okay? Just kidding. Go. Right. Um, now, I, I'm just, this is probably a question that can't really be answered, but <clears throat> I'm speaking as a as uh, getting to be a really old guy. Mm. And I, you know, I look around, there's a f- few others that have been here in this, around this church clear back in the old days, you know, like the 80s and 90s, like maybe Dean LeVang and a few other people, I mean, <laughs> Gary McVeigh. But it just seems to me that the farther we go, the more permissive the younger generations of, of believers you know, I'm really not talking about people at church, but mm. I run into people at work, for example, who I know are genuine believers, but, you know, they, it seemed like in the old days, we just, we just didn't drink, smoke or chew, or go with girls that do, as you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were very careful about, about our talk and so forth, and now I hear people, you know, who I believe are believers, you know, and it sounds like maybe they're drinking a little too much, or maybe they're hanging around the bars, you know. And in the old days, you, you only hung around the bars if you went there to evangelize or something, you know. Mm. And then I'm, I'm thinking of this passage in Ephesians 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not, not even be named, named among, among you. you. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking. And um, it seems like I just hear a lot, a lot more of that, just people pushing the... The edge, you know, yeah. just just way out there on the edge of uh, what's appropriate and what's not. I mean, is that am I the only one that sees that? Or oh, I, I think there's something to it. I think what happens is the pendulum overreacts back and forth constantly. So if the church goes through a season of moralism and potentially legalism, I mean, if if you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or girls will go that, go with girls that do, genuinely as your own conviction to honor the Lord, wonderful. If you do that because it's very clear everyone around you will judge you and look down on you, then you're maybe a more of a legalistic church. So you get you get the sort of the moralism and the legalism swing, and it starts swinging that way. Then there's a reaction against that to Christian liberty that goes too far the other way, and then eventually there'll be a reaction to that, and that's generally, in my experience, looking at a broader picture of church history, the types of phases we go through. And I think, yeah, now we are in, in more of a licentious, um, antinomian, anti-law, anti-rules. Um, I think that fits well with the spirit of the age as well, because postmodernism says, you have your truth, I have my truth, and the worst thing I can do is try to foist my truth on you and your truth. And the one verse everyone knows, unbeliever, unbeliever alike, is don't judge. So it fits very well with the spirit of the age for for us to say, well, you know, I'm free in Christ, and my, you know, I've I've heard all of the justifications, um, whether it's well, I just read the red letters, or whether it's well, God will forgive me, or whether it's you're just being legalistic, or whatever. Which is part of the reason why I want to slow down this Sunday and try to work through, so we'd have some sort of criterion to evaluate: is that true? 
Is, is it, could I be being legalistic? And then, so it doesn't paralyze you when someone brings the accusation up, because I don't want to get rebuked like this, so I don't want to be a legalist. Uh, and yet, I don't want to just say, okay, well then, everything goes. Um, do what you want, have fun. Because that is the path to death and destruction. But I, I tend to think we are in a more licentious, antinomian, uh, lawless um, phase, at least in the Western church, for sure. For sure. Um, yes, sir. No. No. I agree. Oh. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Uh, I, I see it as sinusoidal, you know, up and down. I remember the 60s. Mm. I hate to be older than Gary, but I remember the 60s. And I also see it in my own life, mm. up and down, up and down. Mm. So I have trouble with your comments about not being uh, criticizing, not, not putting your opinions out there. On the news this week, there was a lady who was advocating for her... Um, alternate gender mm. presented as a five-year-old son uh. in school that couldn't use the proper bathroom. Uh. And my comment just blurted out, I think she's abusing her child and social services should step in. Uh. Well, that's judgmental on my part and I don't find it in the Bible. And so I will... Well, I think you could Keep find quiet. I think, I think you could find that in the Bible, but okay. What is transgender? What? What is transgender? Oh no, no, no! Let me answer that question. That's, that's, who I just who said can no. use the restroom? Well, let me let me say this: the restroom issue. Um, I, no, let me let me take as a case point. We're going to go a minute over, but let me do this. I just listened to my old pastor John Street. Um, he, he heads up one of the fellowship groups at, at Grace Community Church, made a really interesting observation. When the people want to say transgender is not in the Bible, the Bible doesn't deal with it. The two terms that Paul uses, and he uses two terms for homosexuals in 1 Corinthians 6, specifically refer to the active and passive partner. And I'll try to be as polite as possible. In, in every relationship, one partner will adopt the feminine role, um, at least physically, and I don't mean like effeminate. I just mean one's active, one's passive. If you're yeah, I don't want to be any coarser. And so there is always in homosexual relationships a focus of transgender, somebody pretending to be what they're not. Um, God made me biologically to, to give, and I'm going to receive. <laughs> I don't want to go there. But his point is the very terms that they're using of the active and passive person assume a sort of role reversal. They exchange proper roles. So I, the Bible absolutely can deal with transgender. You go to the law in Leviticus about men wearing women's clothing um, and it being forbidden. So, so we know that the Bible does deal with that. We know that that's wrong. As regards to the, uh, the, the men's and women's bathrooms, um, I, I think there it's... Well, there's a couple issues. One is the notion of uncovering your nakedness as someone else. I, and so the notion of letting someone else look at, you know what I mean, that type of thing, showering and mixed bathing, that, that whole issue. issue. Um, and there's also a desire to protect our children. But whereas I couldn't die on the hill of, um, of bathrooms, because if you pressed me, I'd probably question the wisdom of having 
a lot of young men in the showers naked, and conversely, I'd be all for single stall thing, and then you sort of dissolve the question. Um, so I couldn't necessarily prove that. I definitely would say a just and righteous government would recognize people as God made them, that the Bible recognizes a difference between men and women, that we should treat women differently than we treat men, with a greater honor, actually. Um, and so I think it's a shame. I think it's a shame, shameful that we have women dying in combat. We send women out to, to fight our wars for us. Not that women can't serve roles in the military, but I think it's shameful. Like I feel a sense of national shame that we're sending out mothers and and our women to, to die in battle while we have men, you know, staying safely at home. I, I feel a sense of shame for that. And I think there absolutely can be a context to speak to, critique our culture. I, I don't know enough particulars to know whether when you said that out loud, it was the right context. I think there absolutely is a place to do that. So but I, I think the Bible absolutely deals with the transgender issue. Um, and just off like the top of my head, that's one place. We are over time, so sadly, you are not able to respond. We'll talk after the tape's done. Thank you, everybody. God bless.